Community Radio. It's about real people. Not sound bites. Not more talking heads. Not on this show. Interchange is a community access media forum fostering unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Conversations that challenge the ways we perceive the world around us. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight, Claims on the Forest. This is part two of a program about logging in Indiana State Forests. On September 9th, we were joined in the studio by the State Forester, John Seifert, for the first part of this conversation. That program is available on our website at wfhb.org backslash news backslash interchange. In order to explore some of the issues discussed on that program from a different perspective, we're joined in the studio tonight by Mike Lertzema, coordinator coordinator of Hoosier Forest Watch for the Indiana Forest Alliance, and by Ron Kerner, an expert mushroomer who runs the website indianamushrooms.com. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's start with you first, Mike. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about the Indiana Forest Alliance and your role as coordinator of Hoosier Forest Watch. Well, the Indiana Forest Alliance is a, a statewide grassroots network of individuals and organizations who work to protect public forests in Indiana that's on state and national forests. Um, We do that through various means, uh, public outreach and education. Uh, We do that through uh, legislative initiatives uh, at the State House. Uh, We do that uh, through um, research initiatives or supporting um, scientific uh, uh, um, research. uh, and we uh, focus a lot of our time right now on the state forest uh, as opposed to the national forest because uh, that's where uh, the state forests are facing a much bigger threat right now um, from uh, increased uh, commercial logging and, and road building. Uh, we believe that uh, public forests in Indiana should be managed to prioritize low-impact, dispersed public recreation such as hiking, hunting, uh, mushrooming, uh, uh, camping, um, wildlife viewing, horseback riding, mountain biking, those sorts of low impact uh, public recreation activities, but also for interior forest habitat, uh, the type of habitat can, that can only exist on the large contiguous forest areas um, of our public lands, the average which we'll talk about later, the average private forest tract is 16 acres, uh, which isn't large enough to maintain viable uh, habitat for many interior forest specialist species. Uh, so, so those are our priorities. Um, my role as the coordinator of Hoosier Forest Watch is to monitor logging on uh, state forests. I do that by surveying proposed timber sales and, and submitting comments and trying to encourage and teach other people how to, how to participate uh, and um, the public process of uh, Indiana public forest management. Um, we also you know, do things like lead a monthly hike called the Second Sunday Slow Saunter Series and uh, visit some uh, some areas in South Central Indiana predominantly uh, uh, to get people out in the woods more in a, in a casual social setting, but hopefully to um, to learn a little bit too. So it sounds like there's a, a bit of a conflict um, in terms of how the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources in Indiana, conceives of their role uh, in utilizing resources like the forest and what uh, the Indiana Forest Alliance determines those those viable resources. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the Indiana DNR's Division of Forestry uh, says that they manage the forest for mixed-use management. So that includes things like real recreation and, and wildlife habitat, but also uh, timber production. Um, what we've seen over the past 10 years is that timber production, commercial commodity timber production, has been prioritized by the Division of Forestry at the expense of public recreation and interior forest habitat. You know, when we see logging, uh, logging operations close down 
the two long distance hiking trails in Indiana, the Tecumseh Trail and the Knobstone Trail. On an annual basis, large sections of these trails are, are closed down for uh, commercial logging operations, uh, which, which affects the outdoor recreational experience for, for through hikers, uh, many of whom come from Indianapolis, come from Louisville, come from Cincinnati. Uh, so, so we believe that there's the, the current management approach is unbalanced, and, it's, and we see it as our role and our goal to restore a balance um, to state forest management. Well, as, as you might remember on September 9th, Director Seifert uh, talked, that, talked about the fact that logging is a pretty standard operating pr- procedure in these forests and that the dust-up comes, uh, in the currently anyway, in Yellowwood in particular, in, in these areas primarily from property owners whose land borders Yellowwood and they never expected logging to happen in their neck of the woods and so they get excited and, and frustrated and upset with the with the forestry division for cutting down trees in, in their land, you know, on their backyard. So uh, his contention is this is normal, that we've always logged and there, there's no problem, we do this responsibly. Well, there's no doubt that uh, many landowners who live adjacent to our state forests are upset when they see a commercial logging operation in their backyard. Um, while many of them may have mistakenly believed that these forests were preserved forever, never to be logged, uh, many know that they are actively managed forests, but I think many are shocked to see uh, what, what that looks like. Um, the management so itself, the, how, how it's actively managed? Or what a you know, quote-unquote, selective timber harvest mm-hmm. looks like. Can you describe that a little bit? Uh, well, what that involves is building uh, roads along all the ridgetops uh, in the state forest system and pave them with uh, heavy-grade gravel. Um, uh, this involves the creation of large logging yards uh, on, on throughout, like, you know, every half mile or, or mile on, on the ridgetops that have to be large enough for an 18-wheel logging truck to turn completely around. And, 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 this, and also skitter trails. So these huge machines with, with large tractor tires that are as tall as a person um, that drag the logs up steep slopes uh, to the logging trails and to the logging yard. But back to uh, uh, Mr. Seifert's point about uh, this being business as usual for the Division of Forestry, that's, that's, that's misleading in the sense that the current rate of logging on our state forest system is unprecedented, right? So between uh, the numbers I have in front of me, um, between uh, 1994 and 2004, uh, the total volume sold from Indiana's state forest system, system-wide, was about 25 and a half million board feet uh, during that 10-year period. Uh, the, now, annually, they harvest about 14 million board feet. So that means they're harvesting the same amount that they did in a 10-year period from 1994 to 2004 and about a year and a half on the state forest system. Uh, th- this, is a sh- this is a drastic shift in the priorities of the Division of Forestry. The Division of Forestry was created in 1903, or its predecessor was created in 1903 to address problems of erosion uh, and soil runoff and water quality, um, mostly caused by uh, subsistence farms being abandoned in the southern part of the state. You know, that's why the southern part of the state is forested because the soil isn't very fertile for farming. So uh, these farmers would abandon the farms and there'd be drastic erosion. So the state started buying up some of that acreage and replanting it to uh, preserve water and soil quality in the state. And sure, they've conducted timber sales throughout the, throughout the life of the Division of Forestry, but never at the rate that uh, they have been selling timber in these past couple of years. So let's let's clarify that a little bit. Uh, the creation of the division itself coincided with a, in a sense, an environmental uh, responsibility um, to protect the soil and land. Is that what you're? Suggesting? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and that's and that's still the case uh, in the sense of the division of forestry. And, and the Forest Service on the Hoosier National Forest is largely responsible, from my perspective, for uh, the amount of Indiana that has been reforested. Indiana is now 20% forested, and, I, and as opposed to its low point, about you know, 3 to 5% forested in the early part of the 20th century. So I, I want to give the Division of Forestry credit and the Forest Service credit for uh, 
being major players in the reforesting of, of, of much of Indiana. Uh, so uh, again, what we're seeing now is a shift from that uh, more conservation first ethic, um, preserving of uh, or conserving of forest, timber, and water and soil resources towards a, uh, a more utilitarian um, agriculturalist approach to the management, which, which is a shift, like I said, from, um, from the way the division had operated for 100 years. So would you align that with a particular political change at the time? Oh, well, sure. Um, you know, the state forester, Seifert, uh, was appointed by uh, Governor Mitch Daniels when he came into office in, in 2005. Um, and you know, that year, they, uh, they released a new strategic plan, um, state forest strategic management plan, um, and when they released that plan, they had a big announcement uh, in a press conference announcing the 400% increase of logging um, on, on state forests. Um, and that strategic plan, under the property section, which is relevant to the state forests, uh, there's two proposed changes. One of the proposed changes is just about recreation and just proposes uh, that there's adjustments in recreation on state forests. Um, nothing out of the ordinary, just updating some campsites and uh, on the state rec areas at Deem Lake and Starve Hollow, that sort of thing. But the other proposed change, it says in bold, the proposed change, increase revenue from state forest timber sales from the present level of $1 million per year to three, three to $5 million per year. So that was a driving factor, um, we believe, in the increase of commercial logging in our state forests. Uh, that same year, uh, in the uh, Department of Natural Resources biennial budget request to the state legislature's General Assembly, uh, they uh, stated that the goal was to have the Division of Forestry fund more of its own operating their operations through uh, revenue generated through commercial timber sales on the state forest. So this isn't this shows that the economics were driving this decision from the beginning to increase logging uh, to unprecedented levels on our on our state forests. And that would sort of go against the, what Director Seifert had said, that it wasn't an economic practice, their, their choices of, of timber management, but rather a forest health practice. Well, sure. And, and, and I believe that when State Forester Seifert makes that statement, um, I, I, I think that he, he believes that to be the case. Um, as far as the forest health thing goes, uh, when the Division of Forestry says they're using the best available science, uh, that's from a silver culturalist perspective or a, a forester perspective. You know, asking a forester if a forest should be logged is like asking a barber if you want to get a haircut, right? A forester, most foresters have, you know, forest management, natural resource management degrees. Um, and so it's it's the the training or it's, it's and the intuition that um, that management is is inherently a good thing. So if you're managing a forest for commercial timber production, you know this utilitarian agriculturalist point of view, or as the um, as State Forester Seifert said on September 9th in the interview, uh, you know a forest is a garden that needs to be weeded. Like even even that sort of phrase uh, uh, betrays a uh, you know, an agriculturalist approach to our state forest system. You know, in, in, in uh, Division of Forestry literature, um, you, you see all over the place terms like crop trees. And I think he even used that term term on the air. You know, the idea that our forests are crops. Um, if you're a silver culturalist or you're a, 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 a timber manager, then, then yes. And what the Division of Forestry is doing is managing our state forest as a tree farm. You know, if my, if my goal for my forest, my private forest, was to maximize commercial commodity timber production and, and grow the most oak and hickory high value uh, economically timber possible, uh, John Seifert is the first person I would call. Like he's, he's probably the most qualified person in the state for uh, commercial commodity timber production. Um, from our perspective, our state and public forests are, should not be reduced to uh, commercial commodity industrial timber production. Um, that's a, we, we believe, once again, that they hold a much higher value uh, serving as interior forest habitat 
for many endangered, threatened and endangered species that rely on interior forest habitat uh, t- for successful reproduction. Um, and, and that kind of habitat can, once again, can only exist on public forests that are large enough uh, to um, have buffers from roads or other developments or private houses or agricultural land. That's why those, this, the public forests must be the only places that this kind of habitat can exist. Now, you, uh, you had mentioned uh, um, in a conversation with me that you guys have a particular campaign uh, that, that addresses this particular issue. Right. Uh, right now, uh, for about the, for the past year, actually, the Indiana Forest Alliance has been working to create a state uh, wilderness preservation system uh, similar to the federal wilderness protection system uh, that's been in place since 1964 and is celebrating its 50th anniversary, only less restrictive. For instance, we wouldn't prohibit uh, you know, mountain bikes in these areas, or you know, if, it, if a tree falls across a trail, uh, if you know, somebody wants to take in a chainsaw to clear the trail, that's fine. But um, you know, last year we tried to establish this system through a bill introduced by State Senator Mark Stoops, um, and the bill didn't get heard. Um, and then uh, we had resolutions introduced uh, on our behalf by State Senator Brent Steele, a Republican from Bedford, and State Representative Eric Cook, also a Republican from, from Bedford. And these resolutions were similarly worded, and they both called for uh, a summer interim study committee to review the the idea of a state, you know, a state wilderness system in Indiana's public forests, just to study the idea, you know, see the, the costs and benefits to Hoosiers uh, of such a system. Uh, and, and, and those resolutions received broad support. 53 of the 100 state senators signed on as co-authors of, of, of those resolutions, over half. So that's not just people who voted. Those are 53 of the 100 said, I want my name on that or of the, sorry, the state representatives. Uh, 28 of the 50 state senators signed on as, as co-authors. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, uh, once again, those, those resolutions were non-binding and we didn't, um, we didn't, we didn't receive the, uh, the study committee was not assigned um, uh, that issue to study. Um, so what we're doing now, uh, and we were requested to do so by uh, um, House Speaker Brian Bosma's office, is to come back this session with specific areas we want to set aside. So I've spent the last couple months uh, hiking uh, throughout Indiana's entire state forest system, which is probably about the best part of my job, um, and mapping out large contiguous areas that we think should be set aside as state wild areas, which is what we want to call them, state wild areas. Um, these areas are minimum of 1,000 acres. Uh, they, uh, most, they have no county roads running through them. County roads make up most of the barriers. They will not prohibit any access to private inholdings. So people have private land that's near or around these areas. Um, these areas would not inhibit their, their access. Uh, and uh, these areas represent some of the most mature and old, older forests on the state forest system. Uh, and so it's our goal to have some of these areas or all of these areas introduced. We mapped out 12 of them um, introduced uh, in the state legislature uh, this next session. Um, and we're going to have a, you know, a press conference and, and later in October, early November, announcing these areas. And, and we've, um, we've met with the Indiana Hardwood Lumbermen's Association uh, to um, try to uh, find some common ground with them. Um, and we're, we're, we plan to request a meeting with, um, with uh, the Department of Natural Resources uh, Director Cameron Clark to also discuss these proposals. Um, and to hear feedback, we've met with uh, people who live in the areas of these state forests, both in you know Brown County and Scott County and Clark County and Harrison Crawford County, um, to get feedback from people who live around these areas, both on the boundaries, but also uh, to try to, um, to gauge interest. And in, you know, we don't want to be people from Indianapolis and Bloomington going in and saying you want these areas. We want we want to know what people near these forests want. And so that's what we're doing right now is we're uh, we're barnstorming the state and and getting feedback and and and. Uh, with from people from local residents. Great, we've got to take a break right now. If you're just joining us, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we've been talking to Mike Lertzema of the Indiana Forest Alliance, and he'll be joined by Ron Kerner in our next segment to talk about forest health and ecology in Indiana State Forest. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange. If you're just joining us, I'm joined tonight by Mike Lertzema of the Indiana Forest Alliance. And joining us in this second segment is Ron Kerner, uh, who runs the website indianamushrooms.com and is an expert mushroomer. Um, we were just talking uh, during the break uh, of how we would pronounce fungi or fungi. Uh, Ron is a fun guy, and he said we could pronounce it however he wanted to, so you'll probably hear me pronounce it both ways. Um, in our September 9 show with State Forester John Seifert, uh, one of his strong claims was that sunlight drives the system. We were talking about uh, clear-cutting or, or some some sort of smaller type of clear-cut. He had another name for it that I can't recall at the time. Regeneration opening, probably. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. Um, good terms for these things. Um, uh, but uh, the question struck me as an interesting one, uh, having a mushroomer on. Uh, I don't know how sunlight dr- drives the system for mushrooms, uh, but I assume it drives the system for a lot of uh, plant life and things of that nature. So what kind of claim is that, that sunlight drives the system and that that's kind of their, their modus operandi, it seems like? Well, sunlight drives the system for the vegetative growth of the forest, of course, and especially t- trees um, and uh, with uh, trees and a lot of the vegetative uh, growth in the forest uh, there's um, relationships with fungi that um, uh, provide a, a benefit and a, a, a stimulant to, to the growth of the, the vegetation and trees and without that the, you, you, will, you won't have the, the uh, uh, optimal growth that, you, that you'd want to see in a forest. Um, and, and by clear cutting or even uh, selective cutting, you're, you're, you're eliminating fungi from the forest. Um, the, and, uh, it, it's, it's the f- relationship with fungi and forest ecology isn't something that's thought about a lot by a lot of people um, in, uh, in, in terms of uh, the forest health. But s- the uh, Biomass beneath the forest floor is made up mostly of fungi, um, and it it works in concert with with soil and nutrients and water to help trees uh, grow and and vegetative uh, life grow in the forest. Fungi form uh, what's called mycorrhizal relationships with trees. They're symbiotic. A, a, a mutualistic symbiotic relationship where they both benefit from their relationship. Um, These are important points uh, I'd like to stress a little bit here. I think a lot of times when we talk about these issues, they seem uh, top-heavy in a sense. You know, we see trees, they're large, and and we see them cut down, and we talk about the aesthetic of it. We talk about landowners or people who have homes near the forest and the beauty of the forest, and then when it's cut down, it's an offense in some sense. But, excuse me, a lot of what we're talking about is a disruption of eco-health, right, ecosystem health, and how even uh, a clear-cutting that might seem to be regenerative has done damage. Absolutely. Um, when these fungi form these relationships with trees and the tree is cut down, those fungi leave the area. They'll, they'll fruit and you'll see mushrooms. But the mushroom, a mushroom is just a reproductive organ of the fungus. Mm. The actual fungus lives underground and feeds and um, that's where that's where that's where that they inhabit and with and, and uh, make these partnerships with trees um, once their source of food because the thing with uh, fungi they cannot produce their own food like plants mm. they're more like we are we have to seek out our food and, and get it for ourselves um, <clears throat> so once their uh, relationship with the trees is ended by the death of a tree They'll, they'll form mushrooms and the spores will fly away to go somewhere else. But uh, to find a, a suitable habitat to, to regenerate can be difficult in a, a clear-cut area. Mm. And, uh, uh, and the, the area will, will be depleted um, of uh, uh, th- that, that fungus. Are these kinds of things that are studied primarily, like, uh, you know, again, trying to understand tree health and, and tree regeneration, and, and we talk about trying to grow forests for more than just timber, but to grow, to regenerate, to, to give us trees that clean our air and sustain life, uh, that it's essential that we pay attention to these particular kind of symbiotic relationships. Absolutely. Uh, one thing with, with 
e- even with replanting a, a, a forest that, that's been clear cut, if um, <clears throat> the, these fungi aren't able to, to uh, mature and, and, and to exist uh, underground with, with the relationship they have with trees, um, when, when you go to replant and those fungi aren't there, the, it, it's been shown that without the mycorrhizal relationship with fungi that trees have, uh, they do not grow as big hmm. and as healthy as the ones that have that relationship. So you're saying within this this area with that this clear cut and then replanted uh, that this will be a much slower growth uh, um, or less robust and and less even less useful tree environment. Yes, that, that the the evidence shows that that uh, the, uh, the 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 soils will change. Uh, the the fungi within the soils really they they aerate the soils they 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 help nutrients flow through the soils they help water f- flow through the soils um, it, it's really a big part of the the forest ecology it, it, like I said it's not really thought of too much but it, it's a really important aspect that really hasn't been studied that much any in any relationship that we're aware of in terms of carbon sequestration with trees and and fungi or fungi. Yes, yes. Um, uh, they, they do play a, a big role in, in the carbon pool, mm-hmm. which is extremely important. It's a very complex system. Uh, and, and also with um, uh, nitrogen fixation also. Um, they're, they're, they're complex uh, biological uh, systems that uh, are needed uh, for, the, for, the, for a healthy ecosystem. Okay, um, so let's move to a different, uh, maybe a different area too. Uh, we'll continue with trying to understand the ecosystem here, and and one of the things we talked about uh, with Director Seifert was uh, wildlife as well. And we did mention bats a couple of times. One's a federally protected uh, species of bat, and another one that uh, apparently might go on uh, at least uh, on some uh, some level of of protected species. Uh, I forget what the names of the bats were. Do you, either of you well, remember? The Indiana bat right. is currently listed under the federal or as endangered under the Federal Endangered Species Act, um, and the northern long-eared bat uh, has been proposed for listing, um, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service extended. Um, or postponed its decision on the northern long-eared bat um, until April 2nd of 2015. Hmm. Uh, so uh, we'll know in about six months, um, six months from Thursday, hmm. um, whether or not the northern long-eared bat will be listed as in federally endangered or federally threatened. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, one of the things that uh, Director Seifert did say, too, in terms of the bats was that this clear-cutting, again, because of sunlight, was beneficial to the bats as well due to drawing insects, I believe you said at the time. Any any ideas in terms of whether bats like clear-cutting? Well, uh, you know, bats and other endangered species, state and federal endangered species, um, birds in particular, migratory songbirds, um, might be drawn to some forest openings um, for, uh, you know, in- increased insect activity. Um, uh, but uh, there hasn't been a... To our knowledge, uh, and according to the um, Indiana uh, Division of Nature Preserves under the DNR, a thorough uh, inventory of flora and fauna in an interior intact forest uh, in Indiana. And that includes bats. There's been some bat surveys. Um, but uh, uh, so in, in 2007, uh, the uh, Division of Forestry submitted a, a draft habitat conservation plan to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, for the Indiana bat. Um, And the reason behind um, submitting this habitat conservation plan was uh, in order to obtain what's called an incidental take permit. That means that if this habitat conservation plan was approved uh, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, then the Division of Forestry um, would be able to incidentally take, so incidentally kill or harass or harm in some other way, the species in question, in this case, the the Indiana bat. Um, This habitat conservation plan uh, was summarily rejected uh, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And and, the Division of Forestry had received a federal grant to draft this plan, um, and it was rejected. And one thing that, in looking through uh, that draft plan, uh, a copy of it had the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service notes um, right in there, as you see, um, claims uh, by the Division of Forestry that, well, Indiana bats prefer 
um, to roost in oak hickory dominant forests. Um, and, and then every time that assertion was made, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had a note that said, uh, please cite this, this assertion, or what's, what's the reference for this? Um, and then there was a, a chart of species of trees that are preferred roosting trees for uh, the Indiana bat. And number one was hickories, you know, presumably for shagbark and shellbark hickories, where Indiana bats prefer to roost under. It's by far and away the preferred roost tree. Uh, tree species two through four were uh, maples were, uh, no, no, elms were second, uh, maples were third, and ash were fourth, I believe. Uh, fifth was oaks. So uh, to, to claim that, uh, you know, bats, Indiana bats prefer to roost in oak hickory dominant uh, forests uh, isn't entirely accurate because three through, or two through four on the species list are not oaks or, or hickories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in fact, oaks are, are farther down on the list. Um, the, uh, uh, the hardwood ecosystem experiment, which I think State Forester Seifert uh, discussed mm-hmm. uh, on September 9th in, in his interview, um, has, ha, was conducting echolocation studies for the northern long-eared bat. Um, and the northern long-eared bat was, uh, was, to my understanding, far and away the most common bat in Indiana's forests. Um, between 2006 and 2012, in 2000, the summer of 2012, they noticed um, at their 18 echolocation uh, locations and sites in the hardwood ecosystem experiment, a drastic drop-off of northern long-eared bat populations. Um, you know, it, much of that is attributed to the white-nose syndrome. But uh, instead of continuing to measure echolocation of bats in those 18 uh, locations, uh, the hardwood e- ecosystem experiment researchers decided to scrap those sites and move them to places near uh, wildlife ponds or uh, perennial streams, but predominantly wildlife ponds, which uh, which were clearly have more uh, insect population near the ponds. So just so something would register. Um, so uh, so we we had concerns about that, like why uh, why the original locations were just scrapped uh, instead of just continuing those and adding other locations. Um, also uh, something that was stood out in that uh, draft habitat conservation plan was that uh, the Division of Forestry referenced some, some studies they were doing uh, to determine where um, Indiana bats and other bats were located in the state forest system. And on, on a note, you know, on a comment on the side, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says, asks, um, well, why wasn't the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service invited to participate in these studies? Um, we would have liked to have been invited to participate to ensure um, that uh, methodology was, was correct and, and that the you know, results were, were accurate. Um, and, and so that's a question that we have also is um, w- the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is charged with protecting endangered species. That's one of their predominant missions. Um, and, uh, and we would like to see the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service be more involved uh, in, in surveying on Division of Forestry land um, uh, uh, for, for Indiana bats. Um, and now the northern long-eared bat as, uh, as, as will either be listed as federally threatened or federally endangered, um, most likely in, in, in 2015. So this was the hardwood ecosystem study, is that correct? The hardwood ecosystem experiment. Experiment, and right. is, so it did begin in 2006? Uh, 2005 or 2006, okay. I think 2005 it began. All right, so yeah. there was, and you did say there was a, an issue beyond possibly tree, diff- what'd you call it? What, There's what a white-nose syndrome. What's that? White-nose syndrome is a was a, a fungus, yeah. <laughs> Ron. Uh, um, we won't blame Ron for this, but um, it's a, a fungus that uh, has had devastating impacts on uh, bat populations across the eastern part of the United States. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In uh, northeastern United States, uh, it, it has wiped out, the white-nose syndrome has wiped out uh, 90% or more of northern long-eared bats. Um, mm. Uh, in, in that region, um, it's now been detected in you know eighteen or twenty one states somewhere around there. Any indication what that story is? What what's they haven't what's going on? I d- haven't pinpointed what causes its spread. It's believed that it could be cavers you know, or you know people researchers even going from one cave to another. That hasn't been confirmed. Um, but uh, so while the white nose syndrome is undoubtedly uh, 
the predominant reason for the decline of you know forest bats who hibernate in caves in the winter. Um, the smaller populations, the drastically reduced populations, are more susceptible to uh, what previously would have been uh, minor disturbances of their habitat mm-hmm. uh, or roosting habitat, which is the forests in the summer. But now that their populations have taken such a dramatic toll uh, from the white nose syndrome, uh, it, it's all the more imperative mm-hmm. that uh, their summer roosting reproductive habitat is maintained and they're much more susceptible to the impacts of of um, logging and preferred roosting areas sure. and that sort of thing. Let's be clear that you, uh, I guess at the IF, IFA, uh, want more, uh, I guess, more answers to the way the HE, ex- e. H-E-E, yep. the hardwood uh, e- ecosystem, Hardwood ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, want more answers to the changes that have happened in that study that were related to the bats in particular, the changes of ecolocation systems, the fact that fish and wildlife has questions as well that don't appear to have been answered at, at this date anyway in terms of this, that study? Not that I've heard. I haven't been in contact with the Fish and Wildlife <laughs> Service in the past, you know, in the past few months. Uh, but um, and before. From our perspective, for the integrity of the experiment, it mm-hmm. makes sense to leave the ecosystem, the ecolocation mm-hmm. um, sites in place uh, to get an accurate uh, account of of the reduced populations of northern long-eared bats or Indiana bats. Right. Okay. Uh, so uh, briefly, too, we've had a question in that uh, program with Director Seifert about the ways in which those, again, those clear-cut operations perhaps increase increase a particular kind of wildlife diversity that he claimed was necessary because it wasn't being increased other ways. Perhaps there's forested land that is not being clear-cut or something of that nature, that this was the type of uh, wildlife that would need to be uh, given some, uh, I guess, help by the clear-cutting and creating edge. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's called early successional habitat is mm-hmm. the term that's Thanks. used. And that means, you know, early forest, a forest that was recently, you know, clear-cut or, or some heavy disturbance that takes out a large area of, you know, from one acres to 40 acres in size uh, of a forest. Um, and it's true that many species are drawn to these open areas. It's our position that the species that are drawn to those areas aren't the species uh, in most need of protection. Uh, For example, uh, the Indiana bats are known, according to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Indiana bats are known to abandon roosts near recent human disturbances. Mm. Um, So while they might prefer some sunlight, uh, but they have abandoned roosts in areas near logging operations or or active roads. uh, additionally, some many neotropical migratory songbirds uh, rely on intact interior forests for nesting, right? Cerulean warblers, worm-eating warblers, a whole slew of warblers, red ivirios, um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, wood thrush, oven bird. Mm-hmm. A lot of these species, rel- most of these species rely on interior contiguous closed canopy forests for reproduction. So what happens when you create these uh, you know, regeneration openings or clear cuts or patch openings, whatever, whatever the term, the euphemism is, uh, it invites generalist species um, in addition to uh, nest parasites such as uh, the brown-headed cowbird. Um, the brown-headed cowbird is a bird that will uh, find another, you know, a smaller bird's nest, either eat or kick out that bird's eggs, lay its own eggs there, and then leave and let the other bird uh, as, you know, nest its eggs. Um, Incidents like of forest gentrification. <laughs> well, I don't know. That's the term that. <laughs> yeah, but um, but so when you create these openings throughout the entire forest system, it's displacing uh, these interior forest specialists um, more and more into uh, fewer and fewer interior forest uh, areas on the state. That's why we're trying to set aside. We favor setting aside large contiguous areas to meet that need for that sort of habitat across the state. Great. We've got to take a break right now. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with Mike Lertzema of the Indiana Forest Alliance and Ron Kerner, uh, who runs the website indianamushrooms.com about forest health and ecology in Indiana State Forest. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with Mike Lertzema of the Indiana Forest Alliance and Ron Kerner, a Bloomington uh, resident and expert mushroomer. We've been talking about forest health and ecology in Indiana State Forest. Uh, When we went to a break, we were talking about the uh, sort of environmental impacts of logging, things like clear cutting or uh, the euphemisms that we've discussed here, regenerative openings, I think was one. That's a nice one. And we wanted to sort of stick with that for a minute before we get into maybe talking about the politics uh, involved in this as well. And Mike, you said you wanted to maybe talk about the salamander? Right. Well, there's uh, Indiana's forests in southern Indiana uh, have a a, a surprisingly diverse uh, population of salamanders, other amphibians, you know, frogs um, and and reptiles, snakes and and, and turtles. Um, And uh, in the next issue of the Forest Defender, which is a newsletter for the Indiana Forest Alliance, uh, will have an article written by Dr. Robert Broadman uh, from, from St. Joseph's College in northern Indiana, um, who's a, a herpetologist up there, so he studies rept- reptiles and amphibians. He is the chair of the Technical Advisory Committee for the um, Department of Natural Resources um, uh, Technical Advisory Committee for uh, Conservation of, of Reptiles and Amphibians. So uh, Dr. Broadman is one of the leading experts in uh, herpetiles in the, in the state. Um, and his article that's going to appear in our next newsletter uh, explains how the devastating impacts that all types of timber harvesting have on uh, reptiles and amphibians, even selective timber harvest. And that, that article is based off of 28 peer-reviewed uh, uh, articles um, regarding or that, that looked at um, everything from clear cutting to shelterward cutting to uh, um, to selective uh, tree harvesting, um, and 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 that makes pretty clear that for many endangered uh, and threatened reptiles and amphibians in the state uh, that re- that re- rely on uh, tree canopy to regulate stream temperatures, um, to filter uh, water, to stabilize soil, or and also that live in uh, the, the leaf litter uh, of, of, of an understory, um, uh, the devastating impacts of, of timber harvesting has on, on, on those species of all, all types, even the most selective of timber harvests. Yeah, these are, I think, uh, really interesting points, again, that we tend to lose sight of because we talk about timber management, we talk about how we use the forest, and I suppose it makes sense when we talk about the Department of Natural resources and we talk about mike you've used the word utility utilitarian utilitarianism um we have that sense of of use and product and commercial viability of these resources and one thing that uh, director seifert hit on a few times was the sustainability of the resource right that the tree grows back and and one thing that we we did try to discuss was the fact that that takes some time and it changes obviously when you cut one down and try to plant one as as ron has said depending on the forest health a uh, different kind of tree is going to grow back, even if it's the same species of tree. Right. Yeah. Well, it takes 60 to 80 years to grow a, a, a saw timber tree, um, a, a tree that has merchantable value is the term. Uh, but it takes 200 years uh, for a forest to, for an ecosystem to grow. Uh, so if you continually truncate the natural processes of the forest um, by removing um, the mature, uh, economically valuable trees, then you're not allowing... Uh, that forest to um, that the natural forest system uh, to occur. Would you say there's a sort of a timber um, uh, cycle in a sense for for harvesting? Again, we use these terms for of agriculture harvesting stems. So we have uh, the the tree growing at uh, would you say sixty to eighty years where it becomes uh, something that will be uh, fetch a good price on the market. Um, so if we're if we're clear cutting here and there, we're we're replanting. Uh, every 20 years maybe here and replanting every 20 years there and replanting every 20 years to sort of get a continual growth and cut? Well, to be clear, they're not replanting very often on these areas. Mm. The idea is to remove the canopy so uh, trees in the understory have a chance to grow. Trees that are already starting to grow. Trees that are already growing. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, uh, So there's a fundamental difference between uh, silviculture Mm -hmm. and forestry and ecology. Uh, So... um, what the Division of Forestry has been practicing is, is silviculture, mm-hmm. uh, which is rooted in agriculture, as you can tell by the, the word, you break the word down. Um, and so you see these words uh, in silviculture and forestry, such as crop trees 
or overmature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the term overmature is applied to trees that are, you know, 80 to 100 years old. Um, and at that point, a tree will be deemed overmature uh, because after that point, it starts to lose, it stops producing uh, saw log volume mm. um, uh, and, 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 and declines in economic value. Many of these trees that are deemed overmature at 80 to 100 years have natural lifespans of, uh, you know, a scarlet oak has a natural lifespan of 120 years. Anything, and that's the, that's the youngest, that's probably about the youngest, mm. um, but anywhere between two and 600 years is natural lifespan. So that's like saying, you know, a 14 year old or a 13 year old is over mature, you know, a, a middle schooler. Uh, that's that's the, the different, um, mm. that's the scale that the silver culture works, works right. on. So it's interesting in terms of, again, talking about the, what a tree might be good for, right? And how you value those particular things. So we talked about carbon uh, sequestration and, mm-hmm. and last, uh, last uh, I guess the 9-9 program, I brought in some information on old growth mm-hmm. uh, trees sequestering far more carbon than any younger trees, even even the ones that were, were deemed to be maybe on their last legs, they tended to actually pull in more carbon than than a lot of the uh, I guess acreage of with multiple trees on it. Right. Well, that's something that just has shifted the paradigm the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, until two or three years ago, the idea was that uh, a climax forest uh, no longer. Uh, sequestered carbon from the atmosphere that it was just stable at best and might even you know uh, release carbon into the atmosphere um, but in the last couple of years uh, there's been a number of papers that come out uh, that have proven um, that actually the trees sequester more carbon as they get older they don't just stagnate don't grow older and just stop they just keep pulling more and more and more until they uh, carbon from the atmosphere until they die and the mortality mortality you're talking about what drives the forest system. Um, sunlight drives crop trees. Mortality drives ecosystems. Mm. So trees that grow and their full lifespan, they die, they stand, they provide more habitat value. The older and larger the tree is and it dies, uh, and it still provides a habitat value, then it falls. It creates the openings that the Division of Forestry is trying to mimic um, with these regeneration openings um, and still creates habitat, uh, both the early successional habitat that happens then. Um, yeah, you have some Sure, sure. And, and they, they create, they create the, the forest soil too. Exactly. They, 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 they fall down, they, they decompose with the help of fungi, and they return to the soil, providing more nutrients and uh, composition to the soil that's uh, beneficial to the entire forest. The U.S. Geological Survey reversed their position on uh, uh, carbon sequestration of older forests after these studies come out. So this is really a paradigm shift that mature forests continue to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. An understanding in the science. And under, exactly. That has changed. And do you think that will make a difference in, ter- in the terms of the DNR then? I mean, if the science... Well, you don't see... Actually, in the Division of, uh, Division of Forestry, um, in their plans that they publish for mm-hmm. um, proposed timber harvest, the ones that I survey and comment on, you, uh, there's never anything about uh, climate change. So let's move in. I, that That's a pretty natural way to move into the politics of this issue as well. Um, and uh, I would actually um, wonder in, term, in those particular terms what it is that the DNR is charged to do if, if we move into a politics of conservation. You know, do we have to... Um, elect uh, a different uh, different party? Do we have to elect a Democrat to have a different forestry service? Is that a pro- I mean, is that really what would happen? Um, you know, I want to emphasize that the governors uh, and policymakers who have had the most impact on state forest protection in Indiana or taking the strongest measures to setting aside large, for- large sections of state forests in Indiana have been Republicans. Mm. So uh, for me, uh, this is not a conservative or or liberal issue by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Governor Otis Bowen and Governor Robert Orr set aside the three backcountry areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we've seen is that more of the conservation, you know, the conservative conservation community establishment in Indiana has come out in support of setting aside mm-hmm. large areas of our state forest system. James Ridenauer, uh, who was the director of the Department of Natural Resources in the 1980s under Governor Robert Orr. He set aside the Morgan Monroe State Forest backcountry area. Republican. He worked as the National Park Service director 
under uh, the first President Bush. Uh, for eight years, I think he served as a National Park Service director. Uh, and he lives in, you know, in Indiana. He's back in Indiana. Uh, so, and, 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 and James Ridenour, uh is not a bleeding heart liberal by any means. He re- recently wrote a guest column in the Herald Times of Bloomington and it appeared in several newspapers throughout the state uh, calling for large areas of our state forest system to be set aside. So, and he's a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, Governor Orr and Governor Bowen were Republicans. Uh, state Senator Steele and State Representative Cook are Republicans who are supporting uh, this initiative, uh, who have stated their support for this initiative to set aside large portions of the state. Um, so I don't think... I personally do not believe that we need to elect a Democrat to get anything done. I think mm-hmm. it's just, um, you know, supporting these you know, Republicans who happen to be in power at the moment, uh, telling them that, oh yeah, we support this for them to feel supported and taking these uh, steps in the state house to protect these areas. Mm. Why? Why do you think it is that this is a timber management? Uh, DNR, or what? What? It, where is the shift, or how has it been a timber management relationship? Uh, if these people that you're talking about in the from the 80s, or you know, governors who set a particular standard for forest management, wh- when was there a shift at some time that that was wasn't um, timber related or economic, re- you know, economically related? I think the current program was predominantly economically driven. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in a fiscally conservative state, that's a really strong argument. Mm. Um, However, I have numbers in front of me. I like to support my statements. That's good. Um, And the U.S. Forest Service budget request from the Congress uh, for 2014, they have numbers of uh, uh, areas of Forest Service um, operations uh, and how many jobs is supported and what the contribution um, to the, the GDP. Um, according to the U.S. Forest Service, across the national forest system, recreation and wildlife visitor use uh, contributed $13.6 billion uh, in revenue in the previous year. Uh, and it supported 205,291 jobs, uh, recreation and wildlife visitor use. So compare that to forest products on the national forest system. Compared to the $13.6 billion for recreation, forest products generated about $2.7 billion. Mm. So that's uh, you know, less than 25% uh, of, uh, of the revenue um, from recreation to compared to forest products. As far as jobs supported, um, forest products uh, on national forest system, system-wide, um, supported 42,320 jobs. Uh, compare that to the 205,000 jobs supported by recreation. So that's a, that's a huge disparity. Hmm. Uh, and we see that this, there's no reason that this model cannot happen on our state forest system uh, an, as non-consumptive uh, forest management uh, priorities. Uh, with, uh, so as far as the economics of it go, uh, we feel like they're strongly uh, in, in the favor of managing the forest for wildlife habitat and, and recreation. Uh, there's demand for that in Indiana. I was at the Deem Wilderness last weekend in the Hoosier National Forest, which is 13,000 protected acres in the Hoosier National Forest. There is not a free parking spot in that entire forest last weekend. Hmm. Um, Hoosiers value outdoor recreation, uh, and, and we believe that a state forest should be managed uh, to to meet that demand. So um, briefly, if you could, uh, Ron, let's let's let you have a, a last word here too. What what would you like to see the the state forest system do to help uh, maintain forest ecosystem? Well, it would, it would be really nice if we could <clears throat> set aside some areas to allow them to to grow to maturity, to become old growth forest, so that we we can uh, understand the the processes that go on there. Uh, to to identify the fungi that are in these areas, they they haven't all been identified. Mm. We don't know the, all the relationships they have with uh, with trees and, and plants, and uh, it, it would be really nice to have areas where we we could allow the natural process to continue on unabated. Does that coincide with your wildlife uh, areas, Mike? Yeah, the, uh, state wild areas. Thank yes, you. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, wildlife areas. areas usually involve large openings. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> uh, but absolutely, I think I think Ron touched on a very important point about the baseline. Mm-hmm. Right now, there is no baseline to uh, area in the state 
to monitor what a natural forest processes look like in Indiana, how the forest responds to disease, drought, insects infestation, all on its uh, own, windstorms, without, all without, on its without own, human interaction. Without, without human, mm-hmm. uh, inter- correct. Uh, mm-hmm. For the hardwood ecosystem experiment, they have a few um, no-harvest plots, but they're two to 300 acres in size, which is not large enough to, uh, to, to represent a viable interior forest. They can log right up to the 200 to 300 acre areas. Um, so we think it's essential to establish that baseline. Like I said, no thorough inventory of flora and fauna has been conducted uh, on any area of the state forest system. We're currently trying to do that now with our eco blitz in the Morgan Mineral backcountry area, um, which Ron's been uh, a very active uh, volunteer with. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's the state forest used to have areas set aside as old forest areas in this program that was thrown out in 2006. Mm-hmm. 6,000 acres were set aside by state forester Bernie Fisher that where no logging would happen, no road building would happen. Um, and that, and that to, so you could see the baseline um, of, of forest processes. And that program was thrown out in 2006. So we believe, as Ron said, that establishing these large, contiguous state, you know, state wild areas uh, would be a first step to restoring that balance of state forest management. Great. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks to our guest, Mike Lertzema, Hooser Forest Watch Coordinator for the Indiana Forest Alliance, and Ron Kerner, expert mushroomer and operator of the website, indianamushrooms.com. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Join us next week on Interchange for the Griffey Lake Deer Kill, the politics behind the science. While city council members have repeatedly asserted that there is an ecological catastrophe in the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve caused by deer overpopulation, many citizens have disputed this claim, calling on the city council to put a two-year halt on the Griffey Deer Kill pending an accurate count of deer and a full exploration of non-lethal population management techniques. That's next week on Interchange on WFHB. Thanks for listening tonight. Our board engineer is Carissa Barrett. I'm the producer of Interchange. Executive producer is Allison Bektesh. Our theme music is by Jamil Effiam. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on WFHB. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Written and produced entirely by volunteers working in the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Interchange fosters unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Comments, suggestions, and program ideas may be sent directly to the Interchange staff. The email address is news at wfhb.org. That address once again is news at wfhb.org.